one verse I'm going to open up with, and I'm going to uh, read this. I want you to think about it through uh, what I'm about to do, what I'm going to take you through um, in just a moment. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes and he says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, let me just read that again. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. Now, think about this as we come to the Middle Ages. One mediator, one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Now, I have uh, taken you through two periods of church history. Uh, The first period was the age of um, Catholic Christianity, the when the church was young and just uh, starting the first couple of hundred years, it went from 70 to, uh, I think we took it to 312. And then I've just taken you through the second period uh, of imperial Christianity from 313 until about 590. Now, I'm going to start tonight, and for the next couple of weeks, I'll be moving you through what is known as the age of Christendom. Uh, from about 590 or 600, and we'll just take this all the way up to uh, uh, 1517 uh, when um, Luther nails the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. It's that period of time. It's an extended period of time that is known, called the Middle Ages, but the old historians, they don't call it this anymore. In fact, they kind of rail about anybody who calls it this, but years ago, The old historians used to call this the Dark Ages. Now, why were the Dark Ages dark? People could not write. People could not read. People had no scripture. To own the word of God was against the law. Um, And so you enter into the age of Christendom. And when you say that, it sounds almost like, well, now, wait a minute. That sounds like the age of, of a kingdom. Well, it is. Uh, they thought that they could take Christianity and bring the kingdom of God politically to the earth. And that's what you're going to see through the Middle Ages. That's what's going to happen. And I want you just to kind of watch how a lot of things begin to develop through this period of time uh, in the church, which is the Catholic church at the time. It'll be the Catholic church the Roman Catholic Church, up until you get to 517. I mean, by the way, yesterday I was reading on the plane. I don't have time to say this. I don't have time to go through this. Um, I was going through the period. There is a fascinating, I won't deal with it, the, the empire, Ro, the Roman Empire is really has collapsed. 590, you remember we've gone through that? It's really collapsed, but you still have Rome and you still have Constantinople, remember? It's divided in two, they split in two. And uh, the interesting thing is what happens, not politically, but religiously, you get the Eastern Orthodox. Have you ever wondered about that? Where do you get, you know, where does Greek Orthodoxy, where does Russian Orthodoxy come from? Where does all of that kind of come out of that Eastern Orthodoxy? What separates them from Roman Catholicism? How are they like? How are they different? Fascinating. Do you know what? Do you know the basic thing that brought about the Eastern Church? Theologically, it's this: the Western Church believed 
that Scripture taught justification. That the church, now the Roman church taught this. Luther's going to get it straight out of Scripture. Um, but we've got to wait about a 1,000 years to get there. What, you, what you've got now is you've got the Roman church that says justification comes not just from Christ, but it comes through the church. Grace comes not just from Christ, but it comes through the church. Well, that was the emphasis that way. The emphasis in the Eastern church, in the Eastern Orthodox church, was that Jesus came to restore the fallen image of God in man, iconology, icons. And so the Eastern church put an emphasis on icons and the restoration of the image of God in fallen man, whereas the Western church was looking at grace that was dispensed through the church, through the priest, through the bishop, through the pope. Isn't that fascinating? Well, it's fascinating to me. I, I was reading um, this all the way on the, on the way to Jacksonville yesterday. Pretty fascinating. Well, do this. Now, let's turn and look at those two things. Let's look at the age of Christendom as it is this kingdom that is going to be established by politics and military has nothing to do with the spiritual, has nothing to do with really God at all, but it's this concept that we can rule the world or the then known world, we can rule it through a political military process. So I'm going to tell you what's going on politically in that world, militarily, uh, what's going to happen ecclesiastically in the church. Rome has fallen it's kind of breaking apart. You still have the city of Rome. Uh, it's still there. Uh, you still have some semblance of, of, of Rome there. But you've got all of these groups of people that are coming in. You've got all of these groups of people that are making their way into Rome. You've got the Visigoths. You've got the Vandals. You've got the Bur uh, Burgundians. You've got the Franks. And while Rome falls... Constantinople is still standing. Now, Constantinople still has some government and an emperor, but it only has a bishop, whereas Rome does not have an emperor any longer, does not have a military, doesn't have really a standing army, but it has the pope, as we would call him at that time. He's the head of the church. Now, remember, we talked all about that the last time as well. And so they look, Constantinople looks at Rome and wishes that it had that, that religious leader, that religious authority. And Rome turns and looks at Constantinople, and the Pope thinks, oh, if I only had a, an army, if I, only, if I only had some muscle, if I only had some muscle, if I only had an army, if I only had the ability you know, to uh, pull out a sword and make all of these groups of people line up and kind of unite and come together as one. So you've got all these Lombards and you've got all these Ostrogoths and all of these people groups. Out of all of those groups, perhaps the major group uh, were the Franks. And the Franks had one great leader who really kind of rises to power 
and pulls it all together, and his name is Clovis. You remember him? You know the family. Ardell, Raynell, Udell, W.L., Marcel, Claude, Eugene, and Clovis, the Ledbetters. No, that comes later. Uh, Clovis is married to a Burgundian woman, a Burgundian princess by the name of Clothilda. Can you believe that? Her name is C-L-O-T-H-I-L-D-A, Clothilda, Clothilda. I told Debbie if, if she lived back then, her name would be Shoe-Tilda. Uh, Clothilda was her name, and she was a very committed Christian. And she used to talk to Clovis uh, about God uh, the God, the one single God that was the true God who created heaven and earth out of absolutely nothing. And Clovis used to respond to her nonsense. He wouldn't accept it, but she wouldn't give up. She wouldn't stop talking to him about God in his need for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Well, he gets into a battle with a group of people called the Alamanni tribe. The Alamanni tribe And as he gets into battle with them, he's losing the battle, and he is about to suffer a disastrous defeat. And in the middle of that battle, at the point where he's about to be defeated, I want you to listen to what he does. He cries out, and he says this, Jesus Christ, Clothilda says, Thou art the Son of the living God, and thou canst give victory to those who hope in thee. Give me victory, and I will be baptized." I have tried my gods, and they have deserted me. I call on thee, only save me. And he prayed that prayer, and lo and behold, in the middle of that battle, the Alamani king fell, and when he fell, all of his army just dissipated. So he goes back home, and he gets his wife, Clothilda, and he tells her what he did that he called out to Jesus Christ, and he said, if Jesus Christ will save me, I will be baptized. Well, she immediately calls the bishop, and the bishop comes to baptize Clovis, and they're going to baptize him in a baptismal font. In other words, they're going to sprinkle him. Now, that goes all the way back. Somebody tell me, where where does that go back to? Come on, come on, come on. Debbie, you don't count. Tell me, tell me, tell me, where does it come Y'all are so good. (laughs) To Constantine. So they're going to sprinkle Clovis. It was good enough for Constantine. It's good enough for King Clovis. And as he bends his neck over, the priest says to him this, worship who you have burned and burn what you have worshiped. That's a great statement right there. In other words, you've tried to burn out Christianity. Now worship Christ and go and burn all the other things that you used to worship. When he's baptized, 3,000 of his soldiers step forward to be baptized that day. Now, this is what begins to happen in the church. You have all of these people, because a king has made a decision, who begin to be swept into the church, not because they've been saved, but because they're going to follow their king and do what he did. And so into the church, you've got all of these pagans, and they begin to come in. Now, I can't do it tonight, but probably next week or 
or the week after that, I'm going to talk to you about where in the world do all of these saints come in. They come in from all of these people, the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, the Burgundians, all of these people start bringing this stuff into the church, but we'll get there and talk about that. Well, Clovis dies, and when he dies, he leaves. He does something that all of these Frankish kings do. He doesn't leave the kingdom to his eldest son, but he leaves the kingdom to all of his children. Now, just tell me what's going to happen with that. They're going to fight just like when you leave your millions to your kids, they're going to be fighting with each other over that. So they do. They're just fighting one another. And in the middle of all of this fighting, it just leaves everything open for a strong figure to stand up and to come in and to seize control. And there's a guy who does that, and his name is Charles Martel. Now, you don't know him by that name. What you know him as is Charles the Hammer. And this guy we owe a great deal to. We owe an awful lot to Charles the Hammer. He's going to do something that is very, very important. He's going to save the Western world. Now, I've got to leave Charles at that point because I've got to, I've got to go and introduce you to what he's going to save the Western world from. In 571, there was a little boy that was born to a family of traders over in Arabia, and they named him Muhammad. Uh, His father died when he was two. His mother died just a few years later. And uh, what they did was they passed the boy off to an uncle who was a trader as well. And so Muhammad grew up learning to be a trader, traveling around the Arabian Peninsula. And in doing that, he saw how divided the Arabian people were. He could look and he could see how Christians kind of were together. He saw how the Jews were together, and he understood that they worshiped one single God. They were monotheistic. And so he looked at the Arabs, and he saw how the Arabs fought one another continuously. They were in battles, this group fighting this group fighting this group. Now, at that time, the Arabs were very polytheistic. In fact, I read on one occasion where the Arabs had something like 365 different gods. They had a god they would worship per day. And uh, what Muhammad did uh, was he picked out one of those gods to concentrate on. And he knew that if he could bring all of the Arab people together, that they could probably overthrow the Jews and the Christians and that they could sweep across all of North Africa, all of Europe, if they could just be united. And he understood that the way to unite the Arabs would be to bring them around a a one single God. At at about the age of 40, uh, Muhammad started going into a cave, kind of to get away, I guess. I don't know what he was doing in there, but he would go in a cave And he would come out and he would go home and he would tell his wife that he was having these visions, that an angel would come and speak to him and he was convinced that it was Satan. And she convinced him that it was not Satan, it was God. And she would encourage him, go back and listen to the visions. Go back and write down what this angel is saying to you. So Muhammad would go back and he would have these visions 
all the way up until the time he died. And they would take that and put that together into a book called the Quran, which means the reading. And so what you have in the Quran, I don't know if you've ever read the Quran or not. It doesn't read anything like scripture. It's very difficult to read. It, it kind of is very disjointed. But uh, the Quran means the readings. And uh, in that, he, he called the people to one single God. He said that uh, God's final revelation was not the New Testament, but God's final revelation was the Quran. He claimed to be the prophet of God, the prophet of Allah. He uh, said that it was not uh, the Jews who were the privileged people, the blessed people. It was the Arabs. And that the blessing did not come through Isaac, but the blessing came through Ishmael. And that there was just one God, but that one God was not Jehovah. His name was Allah. And so with that, people began to believe this as he shared this, and he called those believers who followed him into a jihad, a holy war, so that they would take that message of the one true God of Allah all across the Arab world. And they did. And they did it with a sword. They would cut your head off. You either believed and came to Allah or you lost your head. They went through the Arabian Peninsula. They went through the Middle East. They crossed over into North Africa. They swept across North Africa. And then they jumped over uh, from Morocco that we know today is Morocco. They jumped over into Spain, and they went up through Spain. And then all of a sudden, they started launching from Spain across the Pyrenees into France, which would take them into Europe. And their intention was to sweep all the way up through Europe and take all of Europe for Islam. Now go back to this guy. I just gave you his name, Charles the Hammer. Charles puts together an army and goes to Tours, France. Do you know where Tours, France is? It's just kind of um, to the south and west of Paris. Uh, just to the south and west of Paris, he takes an army there, he confronts the Muslims there, and he delivers really almost a completely fatal blow to the armies of Islam. They go back across the Pyrenees, back into Spain. Most of them go back into North Africa, and they never try that again. Uh, now, fast forward, you know, a thousand years, and what they could not do at Tours they're doing pretty successfully today without an army. Um, so anyway, there you go. The Battle of Tours right there. Very important. He saves the Western world. Had he not done that, you'd be speaking Arabic today. You just stop and think about what this guy did. Very important guy. Um, had a great deal to do with the Western world in our day. Well, the thing is, he's going to die. And he dies, and he has a son, and he leaves the kingdom now to his son, and his son has an interesting name. His name is Pepin. You ever heard of Pepin? Pepin the Short. That's who he was. Uh, there he is, right there, bigger than life. That statue is bigger than Pepin was. Pepin was short, but let me tell you, he did not lack fight. He was full of fight. 
And what Pepin did was this. He took all of those who claimed to be Frankish kings, he rounded them up, and he sent them to the monasteries. He sent them to the monastery so that he would be unchallenged, and then he sent for the pope, and the pope at this time was Pope Boniface. He sent for Boniface, and Boniface came, and uh, he said, now, you crown me king. I want to be coronated. I want you, you to do it. And so when Boniface crowned Pepin the Short, he put the crown on his head, and he said this, the Lord's choice and you get the divine right of kings out of that. Well, I'm the Lord's choice. What can you do? What can you say? You better not say anything against the Lord's choice. And so he uses that uh, to strengthen his hold on all of Europe. And uh, in order to show thanks to the Pope for doing that, he takes an army down into Italy and he fights the Lombards, the Lombardians, I guess you would say. He fights the Lombards, he defeats them, and he takes the property that the Lombards had, and the property that they had was there on the Tiber River around the city of Rome, and he gives that property to the Pope, and it becomes known as the Donation of Pepin or the Papal State. And it is there to this day. And um, um, Newt Gingrich's wife is the ambassador to the papal state. Well, good for her. Well, Pepin is going to die. Have you noticed this? All these guys die. Now, every single one of them. Not a one of them lives until today. They are all dead. They die. He dies, and he leaves his throne to his son. His son, he named Charles, and he becomes known as Charles the Great, but you know him better as Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Charlemagne is a great guy. He's a great ruler. He's a great administrator. He's a great warrior. He's a great organizer. He's a great general. He's a brilliant guy, and uh, he's going to do uh, what his, you know, what his... Um, grandfather did. He's going to fight the Muslims and defeat them as well. He fights the Muslims and defeats them. He fights the Slavs and defeats them. He fights the Bavarians and he defeats them. Uh, and he consolidates everything together. And being this great administrator, this great warrior, he defeats all these people. He pulls all of this area of France and Germany. He kind of pulls it all together. And he is ruling over that and there is a pope down in Rome who is watching all of this. And he's watching all of this, and he's fascinated with this guy. And he thinks to himself, this guy can be my muscle. This guy can be my sword. This guy can be my power. I can do something that would... Uh, that would ingratiate this guy to me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go up there and I'm going to crown him king. And so you have got the Pope. His name is Leo III. And on Christmas Day in the year 800, he goes to coronate um, Charlemagne and when he places the crown on Charlemagne's head, I want you to listen to what he says. 
Charles Most Pious crowned Imperator Augustus. Now, did you just hear what he said? I crown you Imperator, Emperor, Augustus, Augustus. He has just now bestowed the crown of the Emperor Augustus on the head of Charlemagne and resurrected the old Roman Empire, and they call it the Holy Roman Empire. And now the Pope has got muscle. Uh, who was, uh, who was, who was uh, Don Corleone's? Who was the guy that was his muscle? What was the guy's name? Come on, somebody. What? Uh, that's it. Luca Brazzi. Yeah, there's Luca Brazzi right there for the, for the Pope, for Pope Leo III. And there is his muscle. Now, this guy is going to be significant. He's a good man, and he's going to do a lot of good things. He's going to do some things that's going to be pretty amazing. But now what you have here is this. You have wed together now, unlike ever before, you have wed together now the church and the state. They had no concept of separation of church and state. You know, we just had an election yesterday. I'll be honest with you. When I go to vote for somebody, I try to find a Christian. And I try to find somebody that espouses Christian values and is not ashamed to espouse Christian values and somebody that is life and pro-family and pro-life and pro-morality. That's who I vote for. You can vote for whoever you want to. That's who I vote for. But now there's all the difference in the world and me standing up here and telling you that and me coming in here with muscle saying, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Now, if I brought in a whole army and stood them around this wall and said, you are going to do this, that's what Charlemagne's going to do for Leo III. They're going to try to establish the kingdom of God on earth through political and military means and God never intended for that. I don't know if you've ever read Augustine's The City of God, but it kind of plays out this concept that we can bring the kingdom of God here on earth if we get control of the government, if we get control of the military. No, that is not. It's never been. Jesus told Pilate, if my disciples, if I had this, if this were... My king, if, this were, if I wanted to set up a kingdom here, he, he said, my disciples would fight for me, but that's, that, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm about. And that's why Pilate looked at him and said, he's, he's not guilty of sedition, what the Jews were accusing him of, trying to overthrow Caesar. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Remember Jesus saying that? Y'all just looking at me. You remember Jesus saying, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not. He, what did Jesus say to the disciples? Listen, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, you see. Well, they were going to try to bring it about. So it, it weds all of this together. It brings this together in an unusual way, and they're going to do this for the next 500 years at least. You've got a double-edged sword where one side of the sword is the church and the other side of the sword is going to be the military state and they're not only going to, to rule over the whole population. What they're going to do is this. 
they're going to begin to battle each other over this. They're going to fight each other. And so from time to time, you're going to see the church and the state come at each other and battle each other. You're going to have popes that actually lead armies into battle. It's kind of interesting. But this guy does a number of things. He is going to enforce morality throughout all of Europe. He is going to enforce no gambling. He's going to enforce no dancing. He was Baptist. Nobody knew it. but he, uh, He's going to enforce morality in Europe, and he's going to do something else that is um, very significant. Uh, this guy right here came to believe that little boys should know how to read and write and do arithmetic. Because the only people in the Middle Ages that could read or write and do arithmetic were priests. That's part of why the Middle Ages were so dark. It's part of why the Dark Ages were dark. Nobody could read. Nobody could write. You had hardly anything being written, hardly any music being composed. Um, Nobody knew how to, very little science at all going on. But this man believes that boys, now I'm sorry, girls, uh, he just believes that boys should do this. And so in every church, in every cathedral, he establishes a school so that boys can go and learn to read and write and do arithmetic. Now, that's going to be important. Important. Now, do you, do you, I want you to get that. If you want to skip back to um, the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, you see this with, uh, in the New Testament, and that is the schools were in the synagogues, and the rabbis were the teachers, and the boys would go, and they would learn to read and write, and they would learn to memorize Torah. Their textbook was the Old Testament. So it's interesting that in Judaism and now in Christianity, the leaders in education, the church, the church, until we get tired of it and we farm it out to the government. Well, just let's let the government. Did you know in the early days, now this isn't in my notes, but you know in the early days of America, in a, in a village that had so many people, they had the old deluders law. You ever heard that? Old deluders law? They had a law that said that in every village that I think it was 50 people or more, you had to have a school. And there was a school, and it was to be taught, and it was in the church, and it was to be taught by the pastor, and the pastor taught children, and he taught children how to read and write, and the textbook was the Bible. That was here, established in the early colonies of the United States so that children would not grow up being deluded by the devil. They would know how to read Scripture. They would know how to study Scripture. (coughs) Good night, nurse. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Well, that's what Charlemagne did. Charlemagne dies, and he goes back to the tradition of the old Frankish kings. He leaves the kingdom uh, to all of his children, and all of his children get that, and they begin to fight over it. Now, I've got to turn the page there. I've got to take you to the 11th and 12th century now. I'm going to get you to the 900s and the 1000s and the 1100s, and you have a major chain Uh, change going on in all of Europe. And the change is this, feudalism. You ever studied feudalism? 
Well, you did. Do you remember anything you studied about it? You remember what feudalism came from? It came from a little word called fee, to pay a fee. Now, hang on. Let me explain it first, and then I'll show you how the church is going to enter into this. Uh, Because Charlemagne died, all of his kids are fighting now, and you've got some that just take this piece of property and some that take this land and this land, and they set up their own little kingdoms, and you get these large landed estates with lords, or as the Scottish call them, lairds, the lairds, the lairds of the hus. They were the ones that everybody that lived on that land paid a fee to them. They would grow the crops, they would tend the animals, and the laird of the hus got so much of that. And they were called, what, vassals. And these vassals that lived on the land had to pay the lord of the castle a fee every year. They also had to give him 40 days a year military service. And there begins to grow out of that a military class, and they call that professional military class knights. You're going to get to the crusades in this period of time. And uh, the crusades are going to begin to kick up in the late 900s and into the first part of the thousands. And then they'll peter out about 1,200 or so, somewhere around in there. But you start having these waves of professional soldiers and people go off to the, to the Holy Land to reclaim the Holy Land from the Muslims. Well, this is the beginning of all that. Now you have churches on these landed estates. And these churches on these landed estates, the lords require them to pay a fee like everybody else. And Rome doesn't like that. Rome's got a real problem with that. We don't like you charging our churches a fee. Well, if it just ended there, it would be bad enough, but let me tell you, they take it a step further. They do what is called lay investure or lay investiture. The Lord of the landed estate says, you'll not only pay me a fee for your church to be on my land, but I get to choose who's going to be bishop at that church. I get to choose the preacher who's going to be there. And so these lords of these landed estates then began to choose who would be the priest or the bishop of that church on his estate, and the person who would come up with the biggest amount of money could buy a position of being a priest or a bishop. It's called simony. You know where that comes from? From Simon, who wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament from Peter. Simony. And so, listen, this thing got so out of control that you had these great lords of these great estates who had so much money, they were now buying the papacy. You remember the Medicis? Who were so wealthy, living in Venice, these great merchants who were able to buy their children, their sons, their brothers, the papacy. And you had popes that were being bought and placed on the throne because of money. Well, that became big until you run up on 
a particular pope whose name was Hildebrand. Now, anybody's name, any man named Hildebrand, you better watch out. Hildebrand became pope and changed his name to Gregory VII. And Gregory VII there had major issue with the king of the Holy Roman Empire who happened to be Henry IV. Now, don't confuse Henry IV of the Holy Roman Empire with Henry IV of England. Henry IV was called to Rome. This guy was called to Rome to stand before Gregory VII. He was accused of simony, of buying and purchasing ecclesiastical offices. And Henry IV sent word back to Gregory VII and said, no, I will not come and stand before you, but you will come and stand before me at the Diet of Worms, not the one that Luther will go to in 1520-something. This was in 1076. He said, you will come because you were not elected officially as Pope. So you'll come and stand before me. Now listen, you've got a king who's saying to a Pope, you'll come and stand before me. And the Pope's saying, no, you will come and stand before me. And so back to Henry IV, the Pope, Gregory, says, no, but I tell you what, I'm holding a synod. And at the synod, he, in, he enacts an interdiction. Now you say, what in the world is that? What is going on here? Well, I told you they were going to begin to fight one another, the church and the state. Well, what the Pope does is the Pope says to Henry IV and to all the people in the Holy Roman Empire, I'm going to tell the priests no more mass. Now understand what they believe about the mass is different than what we understand about the Lord's Supper. They believe that through the mass, the bread actually becomes the body and the wine actually becomes the blood and that that is the means of salvation and grace. And so what Gregory VII was saying to Henry IV was this, you do this and I'm going to send you and everybody in your kingdom straight to hell. Uh, Gregory VII was the first pope to declare um, infallibility. He's infallible. The pope said, what I say is infallible. It's like the word of God. I speak ex cathedra from the throne, and whatever I say from the throne is tantamount to the Word of God. And so he sends back to Henry and he says, you don't do what I'm telling you to do and you and all of the people in your kingdom will die without the grace of God. So you have got a king and a pope and they're playing chicken with each other. And they are running at each other in a head on. There's gonna be a collision here what is going to happen? Is Henry going to take troops and go down to the papal state and, and get a hold of, of uh, Gregory VII? 
Or is Gregory VII going to command his priests, come out from there, no more mass, no more grace, no more forgiveness, they're eternally lost. What's going to happen? Next Wednesday night. (laughs) Next Wednesday night. It is a fascinating story. But I go back and I read to you one more time what Paul says to Timothy when he says, there is one God, one mediator also between God and man. It is not the Pope. It is the man, Christ Jesus. That's where salvation comes.